welcome back to the history of Indigenous America, and thank you for patiently waiting over two months for me to get this episode out. I was surprised and honestly really elated to see how many of you have expressed interest in the show and listened to the first episode, and I want to give an extra thanks to the people who have already left the show some five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Now, I know, two months is a while to wait for a new episode, even for a history podcast, so I will try to keep a more consistent monthly schedule in the future. And trust me, we've got some interesting stories ahead of us, so I don't want you to have to wait too long. Today we continue forward on our season featuring the Quiche Maya of Guatemala. If you're just listening to the show for the first time, I'd recommend that you first listen to the previous episode to hear this season's introduction. Otherwise, I invite you to keep listening. So, instead of parachuting right into the 13th century during the founding of the Quiche Kingdom and the genesis of the modern Quiche nation, I'm going to first provide you with some critical background information about the region. I feel it's important to get a good idea of what kind of world the Quiche Kingdom inhabited, as they didn't live in a vacuum. Rather, the kingdom was ensconced in an area full of constant warring and international political maneuvers. They were also one of the inheritors of a great cultural legacy that had developed over the course of the thousands of years prior. This initial overview will be a broad yet brief summary of the thousands of years of history of the people we call the Maya, in addition to some of the other major players in the region, particularly the states in Mexico that held a significant influence over the Maya region in the centuries leading up to the Quiche Kingdom. As mentioned in the last episode, the Quiche are a Maya people. Maya doesn't refer to any distinct, specific ethnic group with a single language. Rather, it refers to a group of several peoples sharing a family of languages, the Mayan languages, and having a broadly similar culture. The word Maya is, technically, kind of a misnomer for many of them, as the only people who natively call themselves and their language Maya are the Yucatec Maya of Yucatan. So how did everyone else start calling themselves Maya? Well, as a means to describe the Yucatec Maya plus their linguistically and culturally similar neighbors, anthropologists, archaeologists, historians, and linguists initially started using the word Maya to refer to all these peoples as a whole, though it must be said that the Maya peoples had never previously considered themselves to be culturally or politically unified as any kind of single, homogenous group or nation. However, since then, Maya has been adopted by Maya peoples themselves as an endonym, particularly as it relates to the idea of a multi-ethnic pan-Maya identity. Nevertheless, they remain a diverse group, speaking distinct languages and having their own local traditions. These days, there are 30 living Mayan languages, and within those you may find additional dialects. Someone living in northern Yucatan might indeed feel culturally distant from someone in southern Guatemala, but they may acknowledge some of the shared history they have as Mayas. I think any overview of Maya history still needs this disclaimer. Despite all you may have heard about a mysterious collapse of a great civilization, the Maya are not an extinct people. Merely using the number of Mayan language speakers today as the basis for our population estimate here, there are over 6 million of them. 
And really, there would have to be more Mayas than this, as that number doesn't include the people who have grown up not speaking their parents' language, but otherwise maintain their connection to Maya culture. This famed Maya collapse, perhaps to your disappointment if you wanted a good disaster story, really only took place in one part of the Maya region. It was pretty localized. The rest of the Maya region, on the other hand, continued to thrive after this collapse. And by examining the history, perhaps we may credit that collapse as a means that allowed other parts of the Maya region to thrive like never before. Although the collapse and abandonment of cities was specific to one area, I do want to say that, all things considered throughout history, this was in fact a pretty sizable collapse that probably doesn't have many equals in history. Even this relatively small area was incredibly urbanized and held significant political importance regionally. In the next episode, you'll be sure to hear me describe what happened, or what might have happened, in further detail. And one more thing before I really start the story here. You may have seen the words Maya and Mayan ending with an N. I've personally already used both in this episode. If you want to be technical about it, Mayan refers to just the language family, while Maya is otherwise used to refer to the people and culture. In essence, pretty much everything beyond language. But to compound the confusion, Mayanists, with an N, are people who study Maya history, linguistic or otherwise. Let's hope I stay consistent this episode. Maya history, as we traditionally perceive of it, began thousands of years ago in the eastern end of Mesoamerica. Mesoamerica, if you're unfamiliar with the term, refers to the area extending from in between today's central and northern Mexico to western Honduras, including all of the land in between. The term Mesoamerica was coined to describe this region of the Americas that historically had many overlapping features among its cultures, including intense urbanization, organized states, intertwined relations, and frequent communication, and other habits and practices, such as building pyramids and performing human sacrifice. The Meso in Mesoamerica is Greek for middle, as Mesoamerica is situated in between the northern and southern halves of the Americas. Its location in the middle of the Americas allowed it to become a region of historical importance. For example, the cultivation of corn, perhaps the most important staple crop across the whole of the Americas, can be credited to Mesoamericans. From there, cultivation gradually spread northward as well as southward into the Andes. Thousands of years later, Mesoamericans maintained a more practical central position in terms of trade, Mesoamericans participated in expansive trade routes extending both north and south, and because of that, we found macaw feathers in today's southwest U.S., and even some possible evidence of a group of people from South America who had a great deal of influence on, or even settlements in, a part of coastal western Mexico. When you also take into account the frequent movement of people within Mesoamerica, you might be able to call it one of the most cosmopolitan regions of the Americas. We will be talking about Mesoamerica more broadly, but will pay particularly close attention to the Maya region. The Maya region, the eastern part of Mesoamerica, corresponds to an area encompassing modern-day Yucatan and Chiapas in Mexico, Guatemala and Belize, and the western fringes of Honduras and El Salvador. And remember, this is just a cultural region, as it was never any kind of unified empire. As I mentioned earlier, Mesoamericans were the original cultivators of corn. 
Corn was domesticated about 9,000 years ago from the wild grass Teosinte, and it soon spread throughout the region, becoming a main source of nourishment. Only a couple millennia later, corn farming had already made its way to South America, although it ultimately played a lesser role in their diet. But in Mesoamerica, as the major staple grain and the main thing that kept you from going hungry, corn featured heavily in religion and culture more broadly. Later on this season, we'll see the role corn played in the Popol Vuh, the Quiche text that I mentioned in the previous episode. These early Mesoamerican farmers also started to grow squash, beans, and everyone's favorite, chili peppers. These foods formed the core of the ancient Maya diet, and are all still very common in Maya dishes today. As far as meats go, wild venison and domesticated turkey were very common, but I must mention that dog was also commonly consumed. In case you're wondering, nobody eats dog anymore. You may already suspect what comes next from your basic history lessons on how civilizations begin. These corn growers eventually started growing a lot of corn, and that enabled the population to grow. With a surplus of food, people were then able to dedicate themselves to non-agricultural pursuits, eventually forming cities with livelihoods beyond farming. It's hard to say exactly when people first started settling villages and cities in the Maya region, but we can generally say that this process of settlement building really kicked off around 2000 BC. Perhaps more critical, however, to the development of Mesoamerica as a distinct cultural zone were the Olmecs which is a name you've probably heard before. The Olmecs, best known today for creating colossal sculptures of heads, began to thrive around 1500 BC. Their core region was just to the west of the Maya region, in the coastal plains at the southern end of the Gulf of Mexico. The Olmecs are frequently credited as the founding ancestral culture of all Mesoamerican civilization that came after. And indeed, much of Olmec culture went on to be highly influential throughout Mesoamerica, especially when you look at architecture and religion. Still, remember that cities were already being settled in the Maya region before then. Though it's difficult to reconstruct a history of this era, we can at least consider that cultural exchange is a two-way street, and that early Mesoamerican history would have had a lot more to it than just the Olmecs. And especially when you consider that the languages in the region were only just starting to crystallize into the families we have today, there is still quite a bit of human movement beyond the Olmec region. On that note, I'll take a moment to provide some Mayan linguistic background. As is the case with other language families worldwide, linguists can point to an original Mayan source language that spread and eventually evolved into new distinct languages. Proto-Mayan, as linguists call it, likely centered around the highlands near the border of today's Guatemala and Chiapas. All Mayan languages descend from that language, though over time they did pick up some loanwords here and there from other neighboring languages. Approximately around the time of the first cities, Proto-Mayan speakers began to migrate beyond this area, or use of the language spread through other means, such as trade or otherwise just local cultural dominance. Gradually, the language spread north and south, and after centuries of diffusion, the Proto-Mayan language began to diverge into separate languages. Linguists say that Proto-Mayan broke broadly into four branches, which themselves have since broken up into further distinct languages. These four branches. The Western branch, which includes languages like Chol, Tzotzil, and the classic Maya language, 
which likely once served as a lingua franca throughout the Maya region. The Eastern branch, which includes some of the most spoken Mayan languages today, such as Mam, Kakchikel, and Quiche. The Yucatecan branch, which includes Yucatec Maya, the Mayan language that dominates Yucatan. And the Huastecan branch, which is actually quite a curiosity. Despite being a Mayan language, speakers live far from the Maya region, way out in coastal northeastern Mexico, closer to the U.S. border than to the Guatemalan border. This branch migrated away and diverged early, around 1300 BC, and maintains a degree of distinctness apart from the other Mayan language branches. With all that being said, it's entirely possible that some of the earliest villages and cities in the Maya region did not actually speak a Mayan language at all. Only with the spread of the Mayan family of languages did some semblance of our modern Maya region really begin to coalesce. Unfortunately, we don't really know what was spoken in the rest of the Maya region before the spread of the Mayan languages, but we rarely know what was spoken in any region of the world before the developments of our present-day language families, in any case. With the spread of the Mayan languages, plus some of the influence of the Olmecs, scholars at this point begin to more concretely speak of a Maya civilization. By the hundreds BC, we begin to see the clear beginnings of the cities and states that would characterize the Maya region for many centuries after. Starting with those early settlements around 2000 BC, scholars call this first period the Pre-Classic Period, also known as the Formative Period. This era includes the Olmecs, but during this period, we also see Maya cities such as Kaminalhuyu ascending towards their heydays. Kaminalhuyu, whose ruins have been swallowed up by a growing modern-day Guatemala city, was one of the most long-lasting and persistent Maya cities, with continuous habitation from about 1000 BC to 1200 AD. Early on, the state centered on Kaminalhuyu was already considerably extending its influence beyond its immediate surroundings including areas that, centuries later, would become part of the Quiche Kingdom. We may call this one of the first big Maya empires, if you will, and it gives us a preview of the sort of states that would come to be dominant in the future. The pre-classic period saw the initial developments of some of the hallmarks of Maya achievements, the things that the ancient Maya are most known for today. Their art and architecture, mathematics, astronomy, calendar, and writing. But it was not until the Classic period that these reached their apex, when the Maya region became one of the most intellectually productive parts of the world. The Classic period follows the Pre-Classic period, and it took place from about 200 AD to 900 AD, though every scholar tends to have their own tweaked definition of the chronology. In the popular imagination, this is what people think of when they think of the Maya. It is considered the Maya Golden Age, where urbanization and monumental architecture reached its peak. Populations exploded, and the region was absolutely covered in cities and villages of all sizes. Jungles were cleared and swamps were drained to make way for farms to support the cities, some of which were possibly among the largest in the world at the time. It was the transformation of land on a grand scale. But not only that, mountains were moved, so to speak. The classic Maya built pyramids, monuments, and other structures ever larger than before, in dedication to the rulers and elites who were reaching new heights of power. But this so-called golden age did not last forever. The classic period happens to be the period that ended in the famed collapse. At the end of the classic period, in a relatively short period of time, 
Many of these great cities were depopulated, left for the jungle to reclaim them once more. Much can be said about the Classic period. In fact, I could do many episodes on just the Classic Maya and their achievements in drama, and I may just do that someday in the future. Unfortunately, for now, I have to keep it brief, because we've still got several centuries to go until the establishment of the Quiche Kingdom. Still, I will indulge you in some of the best highlights from the period, especially those that give us the best context for the remainder of our story. Now, it would help here to follow along with a map of the region including some of the big cities that existed at the time. Unfortunately, I haven't prepared a good website for the show yet, so I can't host a map there for you. But if you do an image search for Map of Maya Cities, you'll find a huge number of them. Check out a few of them, since each map individually won't be comprehensive enough on its own. The Maya region is traditionally divided into three subregions the Northern Lowlands, the Southern Lowlands, and the Southern Highlands. Across the centuries, the centers of power shifted across the subregions, becoming more populated at various points in time. First up, I'll describe a little bit of the Northern Lowlands. The Northern Lowlands correspond to the modern Mexican region of Yucatan. This is a hot and largely flat region, surrounded on all sides by the sea. So, as you can imagine, this was a much more seagoing region compared to the others. There was definitely quite a bit of trade conducted with future Cuba and other Caribbean islands, and although it's tougher to confirm historically, they may have maintained some trade along the coast of the future United States. Next comes the Southern Lowlands. The Southern Lowlands are the heartland of the classic Maya, and where we'll be spending most of our time for now. This region mainly corresponds today with the Guatemalan department of Petén, plus Belize and bits of the Mexican states of Campeche, Tabasco, and Chiapas. The southern lowlands, for the most part, are naturally a hot and humid tropical forest, with some marshy areas scattered throughout. Despite being called the southern lowlands, they are a tad hillier than the northern lowlands. As I mentioned before, the population in this region grew considerably over the centuries, and a great deal of the forest was destroyed to make way for farms. And this was also the region that suffered the great population collapse at the end of the Classic period. In the ensuing centuries since the collapse, much of this forest has regrown as if nothing else had existed, and thus we find entire old cities within the jungle. As an aside, modern Guatemala is now deforesting much of the region once more, and as we'll learn in the next episode, they might regret this. Lastly comes the Southern Highlands. The great mountainous spine of the Americas passes through here, and much of the area sits beyond 2,000 meters, or about 6,500 feet, above sea level. The highest peaks reach 4,000 meters, or a little over 13,000 feet. While the rest of the Maya region is fairly hot, the altitude of the southern highlands makes the area temperate, or even cold. Even on summer nights, it may be sweater weather depending on where you are, despite the latitude. Although, somewhat ironically, the hotter southern coastal plain to the south of the mountains is still considered part of the southern highlands in this three subregion system. When considering the classic period, the southern highlands were, for the most part, actually a pretty marginal area, at least in respect to the power players in the southern lowlands. However, the southern highlands will eventually become our main theater once we move into specifically Quiche history. Now, at this point, you may want to expand your image search to Map of Mesoamerica, because there's still a bit more geography I want you to take note of. 
As I hinted at before, people in what is now Mexico would ultimately hold a lot of influence over the Maya. Of all the regions in Mexico, the central Mexican highlands were perhaps the most influential. This region, which centers around the Valley of Mexico, has served as the home for a long series of cultures going back more centuries than you can count. At the bottom of the basin of the Valley of Mexico sat Lake Texcoco, which has since been almost entirely drained to make way for the growing megalopolis of Mexico City. Then, as today, the Valley of Mexico plus the surrounding area supported a large population and has been home to several cities throughout history and, of course, some very intensive and innovative agriculture. While the classic Maya were ascending towards their peak, there was another place that was already peaking at the edge of the Valley of Mexico. This was the city of Teotihuacan, one of the largest in the world at the time. Not only was Teotihuacan massively influential upon the remainder of Mesoamerica, many people from across Mesoamerica immigrated to Teotihuacan, even living in their own ethnic quarters. As we will see, Teotihuacan, plus future descendant cultures and states centered in the same area, kept a continuous presence on the Maya region, always with political and economic implications. Unfortunately, for now, I have to pause the story here. In the next episode, I'll resume this history of the Mayas, plus a bit of the rest of Mesoamerica. We will learn about Teotihuacan's apparent political intrigue in Maya cities, Copan's betrayal by Curiwa, how the Maya calendar and Maya writing function, the great rivalry between the cities of Tikal and Kalakmul, what exactly happened when cities like Tikal and Kalakmul collapsed and were abandoned, who managed to take the reins in the ensuing regional power vacuum, and a lot more. Thanks again for listening to the show. You can listen to new episodes directly at historyofindigenousamerica.com, or you can subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. The show is now also available on Spotify, if you happen to prefer using that. I would also highly appreciate any support you can provide at patreon.com slash historyofindigenousamerica, which helps me dedicate more time to working on the show. I'm thinking about releasing some bonus content there in the future, like interviews or one-off episodes about curious events from history, so keep a lookout for that. And lastly, remember to tell your friends and others about the show. Until next time.